namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa uddang dhammang sangang namasami So, so practice of cultivating, cultivating the way, way out of suffering, stress, conflict, agitation, all, that's all the stuff, all the stuff of life. So when we consider this, it's really, it's not... Uh, uh, it's not just a meditation retreat we're doing, but uh, noticing how we're affected, where the sticky places, where the tight things happen, where the friction gets generated in our lives. Mm-hmm. This is uh, so our meditation exercises are there to give us some of the kind of strength and encouragement to the tools, the resources that are necessary to come to terms with this, this kind of conflict and stress that we experience. And just recognizing conflict and stress isn't necessarily always apparent. You know. For a start, a lot of it's nothing wrong with me, it's just why there's so many objectionable people around. You know. Like the joke of the, the guy who's on a who's on a freeway on a on a motorway and he's uh, driving along and uh, <clears throat> and he gets this uh, message you know on the radio that there's some nutcase driving on the wrong side of the road and he says that's well that really sounds strange because. Where I am, there's all these mad people driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> Everybody else. So it's like, there's nothing wrong with me, it's just that there's all these strange people around who are causing problems. So, you know, or, or that life isn't going very well. The problem with the weather or the transport or the government or something like that. So it's not always apparent. Also, it's not always apparent because sometimes the the suffering or the stress is, is a sense of um, expectation. 
you know, even happiness, we want it to last longer than it does, or friendships can be marred with a feeling of, oh, you know, we were getting along so well and now, you know, you want someone to be a certain way all the time. So expectation, trying to make things uh, last longer than they do. Expectation of permanence, expectation of constant uh, ease or happiness, uh, expectation of consistent sense of self. You know, sometimes there's a sense of stress that comes up just by recognizing how changeable one's inner landscapes are. Seemingly, they're not up; to, that we can't control them. You know, bad days, good days, wake up feeling one way, be affected by something, we seem to be in this. Uh, so this can give a kind of basic sense of uncertainty or or lack of, resi- you know, who am I, what am I doing here? Mm. So there can be this kind of fundamental question of uh, feeling incomplete or feeling unsatisfied or something essentially off or wrong about about me. Mm. So then we are maybe trying to find the thing that will make us feel a certain way or have a certain idea or have a certain sense of direction or something we're going to do. Fill up that particular place or put balm on that place where we don't feel fulfilled. And actually one of the radical things of the, the Buddha's teaching is you don't you don't really expect, or you're trying to to to, uh, to avoid scratching that itch, and instead go into it. Go into the place of uh, the itch or the edge, where things aren't quite right, or one has doubt about oneself, or one's you know worried about oneself, or complaining about other people. Go into that experience mm. you know, contemplate it what's happening there so it's within this realm of uh, dukkha that the way out is experienced not through moving away from it but through moving into it it begins to there's a movement <coughs> we can do we deconstructs We begin to, you know, look into how we find other people, how we find ourselves, how we find our lives. We realize that generally we are experiencing or sensing things through a particular set of expectations or assumptions. Consistency, uh, things being planable, things being controllable, things, the future turning out the way you want it, things being reliable. You know, when you consider, for example, how amazing it is that you can get an airplane, things that weighs, I don't know how many tons, and it will lift off the ground and carry you through the air at several hundred miles an hour. And come down without crashing. 
you know, several thousand miles away. This is almost, uh, you know, in some ways almost inconceivably magical. And yet we, you know, one of these things can, can do it. Yet not only do we take it for granted it can do it, we get very upset when weather conditions prevent that happening. So you know, I was at uh, Johannesburg Airport the other day. Of course, most of the flights back to Heathrow were cancelled because of snow and ice conditions. You know, there's this poor woman sitting behind the ticket counter who's just been bawled at by 50 people who get angry and upset because their plane is cancelled. And it's nothing to do with her. She didn't create ice or snow, you know. But the feeling like that that the expectation has not been fulfilled, the assumption has not been carried out, and the edge where that experience has happened, people lose balance. So obviously everyone knows it's not her fault. She didn't do it, and yet she gets the emotional she gets the emotional uh, shot. Yeah. So at that place where we we experience this this sense of things not going right, then. We lose our perspective, start blaming, lashing out to our, on other people, or blaming or lashing out on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this is not when we don't really meet the suffering or the stress. We, you know, we still you know, see reactivity occurs. So it's important to kind of keep keep that focus. You know, we we this is what we're here for to go into this, to look into this, and it doesn't have to be tragic or you know violent. It can be just that nagging sense of I wish I'd done something else with my life. You know, if only I'd done this, started this 20 years ago. If only I hadn't done that, or I've wasted my life, or you know. Regret, guilt, anxiety, what could I be, what will I be? Often it's, you know, it comes along with a, uh, with it comes a sense of what I am, you know, and what, how I am in the world. When we really come to actually look to meet that, the sense of the self and the sense of the world, begin to dissolve and we see that what there are instead are perceptions, impressions, assumptions, inclinations, that's what's going on. That's what's actually happening. It's holistic. So we experience things in a dualistic way, like I'm here, that's out there. You know, there's this me and there's everyone else. It's kind of dualistic. There's me and the world. But actually, that that is just the way we interpret it. Really, what's being experienced is seeing, touching, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking, inclinations, assumptions, perceptions. It's it's uh, you know, it's holistic. <laughs> part of it I call myself, and part of it I call other people. But yet, it's always a holistic thing. And the sense of self 
divides that. And then we lose our we lose the real perspective on what we're dealing with is our perceptions, our knowingness of, of experience. <clears throat> so much so that the Buddha said, you know, you can take it down to to um, almost one one point for release, for liberation. Saying with the, this world is a tangle. And it's tangled up in name. Name is the tangle. It's tangled up in name. And with the ending or the breaking up of name, the tangle of the world is released. Name, Nama, refers to our apprehension or the knowingness. What is known, the knowable, what is named, labeled, cognized. And uh, you know, naming is made up of uh, there are certain uh, factors involved in that. One is um, which is not consciousness. You know, so, so consciousness is that which makes things present for us you know, through the eyes, the nose, the tongue. But the naming is the is the interpretation of that experience. Hmm? And it's made up of um, feeling, pleasure, pain, agreeable, disagreeable. It's made up of uh, perception. It's impressions, friendly, unfriendly, waste of time, fascinating, important, urgent, friendly, unfriendly. These are impressions, perceptions. And all these hinge around or, or support the experience of contact. Contact means that there's a kind of, you know, how we know something is it there's a touch or an impression. And from that impression, these perceptions and feelings arise. You know, you hear the sound and, oh, it's the bell. Oh, it's nice. You know, there's that kind of the ear consciousness is struck. You turn a corner and you see something. The eye consciousness is struck. You know, something, you, something, something, you sometimes even say that, it hit me in the eye or it suddenly jumped into my mind, that moment of you know, contact, impression. And then a feeling and perceptions, that's that. You know, feeling of agreeable, disagreeable, uh, and uh, two other factors, attention and intention. Attention is the framing. So we attend, we give attention. It frames something. Yeah. We actually put a lens, we focus on something. You know, suddenly you see an object that interests you, you focus on it, and the other pieces of the, of the world disappear or are going to the background. That's happening all the time. driving a car, driving along, and you're aware you're of the road, wink what's in the mirror. Yeah. And so those could be your primary objects of attention. Every now and then there's some you know, something strikes the eye, that's interesting, you know. 
maybe you're having a conversation with someone, so your attention kind of momentarily leaves that and goes somewhere else. Yeah. You might notice you're feeling hungry or thirsty. And that can become a dominant object of attention. Hey, I've really got to get a drink. Or you want to go to the toilet. Hey, I've really got to stop somewhere. So that pressure builds up. So that grabs your attention. So your attention is always a limited focus on a potential panorama. You know, any moment we could think of something, you know, that would suddenly jump into our attention. Hey, I'm late. You know, suddenly that jumps there. And for that moment, other things pass, disappear. The thing to remember about attention is it's constructed out of things like important, pleasant, painful, urgent, you know. So that triggers attention, you know, we we go for something. So attention is triggered by volition or intention. Something strikes us, something arouses us, something gets us going, so our attention goes there. Yeah. And those factors, attention, intention, contact, perception, feeling, this is what we what is what's going on all the time. Right? Yeah. So some of it seems very internal, intention. You know, this kind of moods, impulses arising. Attention seems to form an object, you know, a person, a function, a task, or something we're thinking about, something we want to put our attention onto. Uh, because of that, we get more impressions because we get impressions based upon what, what we attend to. Yeah. Um, what we attend to is based upon what our fundamental inclinations are. So all this is continually forming this, in this, this world and this self. As you know, when you meditate at any given moment, you could be five years ago. You know, where did that come from? In any given moment, you could be anticipating the future. In any given moment, you could be remembering someone else. And you give a moment, you could be struggling with a problem in your head, you know. Suddenly that becomes the focus of your attention and it triggers off certain impressions, doesn't it? So all this is kind of continually spooling around. And it's a, it's a tangle, it's like a, a running skein, a running thread that's forming these loops. And in that, in all that movement, there's this uh, fundamental assumption, you know, this is happening to me, I'm in this, I'm doing this, uh, you know, I need to be this, what's this, and that, uh, me. And uh, that's the one you don't find. You find intention, attention, perceptions, impressions, contact, feelings. What you don't find is somebody doing it. Hmm? What you find is a lot of impulses and programs. Some joyful, some beautiful, some negative, some critical, some confused. Just the intentions, volitions, programs, perceptions, running and running. Yeah. A lot of our practice is just about 
acknowledging and coming to terms with this, with the self-critical mind, you know, which can suddenly produce a whole set of, of um, details and convincing reasons why this fundamentally that you're screwed up, something wrong with you. Or it could be critical of other fault-finding mind, or something screwed up about everyone else, or somebody in particular. And in that, you know, that, that program picks up all the details that seem to be negative and brings attention onto those. Anything that doesn't fit that picture goes off. You don't see the good, the peaceful, the ambivalent. We just see the negative. And for that moment, that forms that, that person, ourself or another person. Mm-hmm. There's this behind all this is uh, movement of the naming. There is a almost a fundamental inclination to create solidity, to create a world, to create a self, to create a me, to create a you, to create a future, to create a past, to create something other than just this moving, shifting, holistic experience of what's really going on. In fact, it seems very challenging to to accept it as moving and fluid because something else says, hey, you know, uh, I've got to get a plan together. I've got to live a life and do this, that and the other. Be solid. But in meditation particularly is the time in this holistic practice where we we take the time we don't really, you know, for this hour, half an hour, we don't have to do that. So... You know, we can start to kind of service the whole model of how the world and the self get created. So sure, you know, we're going to get up and do our job and be somebody. But how to to learn to let that rest into something that's actually more truthful, more real, so that you can start to come to terms with the maladapted programs that are destructive towards oneself or towards others, those that are saturated or infected with aversion or delusion, fantasies or craving. Mm. So this one you don't need, Mm. just getting in the way. And this is all caught up with how we know things, how we name things. As you know, you know, one of the fundamental um, core strategies in meditation and uh, outside of meditation, mindfulness and full awareness, you know, mindfulness, the ability just to stay with something, bear it in mind, you know, let your attention rest upon that, with the intention is not to change it or improve it or make it different, but just to give it some attention. So, you know, even the processes of liberation are very much involved with intention, attention, contact, perception, feeling. Because that's what we have to work with. That's all there is. So you start to establish an intention just to see things as they actually are. Yeah. Is that possible? And um, 
to know things as they actually are. We say, well, you know, as in the Buddha's teaching of mindfulness, to be mindful of the body in and of the body. So this means we contemplate or experience body in bodily terms rather than in terms of assumptions or perceptions. So, is it, you know, when you experience the body, the body as a body is not experienced as old or young, male or female, beautiful or ugly. It's just experienced as sensations, energies, feeling. Hmm? Sensations such as pressure, movement, uh, vibration, heat, energies, bright, vigorous, dull, wobbly, and feeling pleasant, painful. Mm. So when you directly experience the body, it doesn't have, you know, a lot of what we normally call the body, which is really a visual experience. It's not the body as the body, it's a body as seen through the eyes, as interpreted. Hmm. And you generally see them from the outside. You, know, you don't generally look inside bodies. <laughs> so these, some of these exercises are to deliberately just start to change the ways we look at things. You know, imagine a body as meat, sinews, bones, blood, who's that? Mm-hmm. So we start to use this process of trying to you know, see things in themselves to highlight or root out this eye-making that goes on, which is the thing that twists and biases the whole of that, uh, that paradigm, that, that holistic experience. It makes it into some self and other once you have a self, you have something other than self. You have comparisons, you have conceit. Better, same, worse, you know, bigger, smaller, fairer, fouler. Yeah, yeah. So body in a body is just what it is. It's nothing other than that. It has no comparison. So it's very peaceful actually. In a way. It may be, you know, a body that's aging or painful and yet in itself when we just come to that, and there's no assumptions, no, uh, you know, no, no intentions to make it another way. There's a relaxation of the mind. Something relaxes into that. It's just that. And it, it, so, this process of knowing something in and of itself is a way of purifying uh, the naming experience. So we still have perceptions, impressions, but there isn't that intention, that volition, that seeking the agreeable, the lasting, the territorial, the owned, the possessed. It's just this. So that's the little, that's the right, the peace that we can work on, the quality of volition or intention, the way in which we look, what we are unconsciously or consciously looking for, Expecting, assuming, dreading, that, that, there's an emotional inclination in that.
So, and literally the mindfulness of the body, there's a saying in the Buddhas that all of the whatever um, qualities contribute to wisdom, these are all found in mindfulness of the body. That ability to sense something as it is so that the experience that we're having starts to purify the way we interpret it. Bodies are good like that because they generally, uh, you know, something like the physical pain doesn't care. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what you do, it just is what it is. And you can shift around, but sooner or later we experience that. And feeling is what it is. Your bodies are what they are. You know, you look at your body, you think, wish it could be another way, or have another ear, or less ears, or more fingers, or less fingers. That's what you got. Doesn't matter. It doesn't listen. Doesn't do. Doesn't negotiate. So it helps to 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 train the mind. And we use this as a fundamental thing because there's something uh, much more obvious and apparent about bodily life. Whereas with the mental life, it's much more prone to impressions and possibilities so we keep trying to do numbers on our psychology to change it make it this way that way and you can you know fundamentally you keep you know pushing this or emphasizing that or but it remains essentially in this fragile and um, changeable state in terms of uh, spirit what we call spiritual practice which is again is a kind of interesting number because it somehow implies it's something other than that um, you know this is not spiritual it's just realistic um, you know, within that you know you contemplate the, the mind and there could be that interest in finding or having or making or coming to you know the right or the proper the best the agreeable the socially acceptable the praiseworthy mind state. Every now and then you get something that's pretty much you know, a little bit better than others. We like those. Yeah. And so within that you think, well, you know, if you do this long enough, you can get to a really high special mind state. And yeah, you can work on it. And the feeling can be, you know, if you could just get further and further that way you'd get to the ultimate place the ultimate mind state and cut a long story short the Buddha said there isn't one he said you can go out to different levels of consciousness such as sphere of no thing the sphere of infinite consciousness he said that's not one not what I'm teaching that isn't the end of it. That isn't the end of suffering and stress. The ending of suffering and stress is, is the, the mind or the, the release of the mind from all positions or from all supports or from all clinging, from all basis. So the mind, so that where there's no basis on the realms of any realm of perception, it's just, it doesn't root in it, it doesn't feed on it, it doesn't, fondle it, it doesn't delight in it, it doesn't identify with it. This, he said, is the deathless 
just the mind released from all supports, more clinging. So that we, you know, that fashioning, our, our cultivation of skillful mind states is there in order to provide enough resources to let go of them. That is, when you're, in, when you're really tangled up, there isn't the potential to let go because the mind is just too reactive, too scared, too desperate, too defensive to, to release its, its foothold. It's like, you know, a drowning person will hang on to any old thing. It's desperate. Starving man will eat grass. It's desperate. You know. <laughs> so, certainly a, a deeply afflicted psychology is just too, too desperate, too defensive, too volatile to come to the place where it can, you know, let go, where it will let go. So, there is definitely a need and, a, and a, to cultivate the skillful but we recognize the skillful is never the ultimate it's never the it there isn't an it there isn't a final it you know the, the, you say the, the perfection is the relationship of non-clinging where these uh, so this is the fundamental piece that we're really establishing in terms of our in, intentionality and you begin to kind of really know that, which may sound kind of conceptual and abstract when I put it like that in these terms, but that, that's the underlying peace. The only peace that you can really release is intention, volition, inclination, directive, you know. That's the only, the rest of it comes apart when you've done that. When you've done that, then your perceptions, because all perception has got, all impressions have got some truth in them, and yet they're very subjective. You know, tasty, pleasant. Do you like the colour of the nun's shrine room? <laughs> is it horrible? Is it fine? Is it beautiful? Is it okay? Is it whatever? You know, it's all subjective. You know, it doesn't really matter in a way. As long as you don't hold on to it, that's the most important thing. You see it, you have a perception, that's fine. Um, but it's the holding on to it saying this is actually true and right. That's the problem. <laughs> There's always something true in it, but it's subjectively true, partially true, you know, and yet uh, the grasping makes it solid. And we do this all the time with ourselves, with others, opinions, views. Mm. Nate, you know, it, something that's continually firming up this. So, you know, you can't really change perceptions. You can introduce new perceptions. You know, sometimes when you're kind of feeling, or, you know, it's just noticing this the, uh, this the other day in this cold weather. How nice it is to come to the hall and sit somewhere warm. The perception of coming in out of the cold and sitting down. It's a different one than I've got to go to the meditation hall and get samadhi. 
then it becomes a work project, doesn't it? When you come into the hall because it's cold out there and you don't want to sit down in the warm, oh, suddenly you feel you, you find yourself in samadhi <laughs> because your mind just rests into something that feels agreeable and simple. When you come in with the idea you've got to do it, already it's in a kind of agitated state. Yeah? So you can play with perception. Sometimes I say when you sit, it's like you should always sit and meditate like you've just walked 10 miles in the rain. When you sit down, you go, oh, sitting. You know, oh, great. So you should always meditate like, like that when you come to sit, really sit. It's just the same thing in a way, but the way that your perception actually has an effect on how the experience gets framed. So we can, we can deliberately introduce new ones and they have effects. And of course, they're all relative. They're all half-truths, or less than half-truths. We haven't come in out of the rain, because it wasn't raining. But we may have come in from another virtual reality, like, uh, I'm busy today. I'm carrying that perception. Who's busy, you know? But that can linger with us. So you sometimes you introduce new perceptions uh, just to push away the other one. And what it does is it, it starts to affect our intentions. So yeah, intention is the one that you can really release. And some, some, when we do things like attend to our breathing in and out, the idea of it is you attend to something that happens by itself. Breathing happens. It's been happening all the time. You don't have to do it, it just happens. You sit still, it has a naturally healing and holistic and energetic and calming effect. Uh, It should be a breeze. And because of that sense of ease and obviousness and simplicity and effortlessness about it, the theme of it is, well, this will certainly bring around a relaxation of one's intentions and attitudes because in something that requires no particular... Um, work, you know. And yet, of course, we can load, we can do it the other way around. We can make mindfulness of breathing into coming with the intention, this is something we've got to do and be good at and work at and develop. And then it, it, you turn it around the other way. It's like something which is quite natural and relaxing and steady. It could be something that's extremely stressful. You know, you get stressed out through breathing. Why is that? It's not because breathing is different, but because one's intentions, one's volition. An intention is not necessarily deliberate. It can be reflexes. It can be very long-term habitual assumptions we make or harm-made in us. We approach life as a place which is not giving or trusting or uh, welcoming. We have to work at it. Everything we do, we work at. You know. and this is quite often a, a root reflex that's established for people. So when you meditate, yeah, you work at it, but what does that really mean? You work at how to relax, how to undo, how to find the places where you're stiff and tight and loose in there. That's, that's the work, not to make it more critical, more running those particular reflexes. 
So you look at intention, even when intention is not deliberate, it's a kind of kind of stuck reflex that we have. And amazingly, when we when we meditate, we just begin to sense how we're experiencing the subjective reality. And where's the stress? Where's the tension in it? Where's that coming from? Is it from the breath? Is it from the body? Is it from, or is it from? It should be this way. Why can't I make it that way? I've got to get there. You know, some sort of tight sense. And one of the uh, advantages in in meditation, the way we do it, in this particular Buddhist form, is it's, it's you're continually referring back to the body. Very important. Because the body doesn't have a future. It doesn't have a past. It doesn't have a program apart from to keep breathing. Which it's doing. So it's not trying to get anything right. It's not trying to develop anything. It's not trying to achieve anything. It's not failing at anything. All that is what we're trying to undo. We can undo that by just coming back to the body in and of itself. Sensations, energies, feeling. And you bring the body and the mind together and you let that contact, that connection begin to unravel some of this tangle of naming. His body only knows three things. Pleasure, pain, feeling. Sensation, hard, soft, warm. Energy, bright, vital, stale, stagnant. He only knows three things. There's not not too much to tangle up in that. You just contemplate the, you know, the, what happens in the mind when we experience discomfort. There's pushing, there's resisting, there's agitation, there's fear. Oh dear, am I, you know, dying, I'll rip my leg apart, can I bear with this? I should tough it out. You know, I should overcome this pain, I shouldn't be weak. You know, all this stuff, the mind starts running out around a set of sensations and feelings. So sometimes we sit with discomfort, physical discomfort, just to to keep coming back to sensation, feeling, energy, contemplate it as it is, so that you not in order to get rid of it, but in order to to untangle one's mental psychological reflexes around that. It can be actually very purifying. When we learn that, we start to come to terms, perhaps in this learning ground of the body, with some of the psychological or emotional pangs or hungers or frets or agitation. What's that? Experiencing the mind, mind states as mind states. As the Buddha says, experiencing the mind state in and of the mind state. They're experiencing the angry mind as the angry mind. The bright mind as the bright mind. Contracted mind as the contracted mind. 
The expansive mind is the expansive mind in and of itself. So with that, there's no particular assumption it'd be another way or judgment about it, comment on it. And all that is based on identifying with it, isn't it? Why is my mind like this? I can't make my mind do that. Who, not we're trying to solve the mind, but really, it's not the mind needs to be solved, it's the owner of it. (laughs) That's That's what's getting in the way. And when we begin to, you know, dislodge some of what that owner's doing, the control, the fear, the sense of not doing well enough, it should be this way, the shame, the guilt, you know, then in the, in the release of that, the mind state starts to melt down, shake out, release, relax, come into harmony. Knowing the mind state and the mind state. And you don't know the mind in the mind just through a thought or a cognitive sense. You have to know that through the emotional sense and through the bodily sense. There are three ways of knowing fundamentally. Cognitive, what you think of it, emotionally, how you're moved by it, and bodily, where it's happening. Where it, and this is so this deepens our, our sense of knowing. It widens our sense of knowing. We come to terms with mind states in mind states. You can't just think them. You can't just label them and say that's enough. It certainly helps. You know, that's that. You know, so you're kind of putting it in a box. But then to really release it, there's a sense of an emotional knowing, which is, Kindness or patience or, you know, relaxing the resistance or restraining the fondling and the infatuation. There's an emotional intelligence of what is for my welfare? What is harmonious in this? And that's what the emotional sense, the heart sense, that's its fundamental program. It's always doing that. In any given situation, Something else is looking for what's the place of harmony, ease, comfort, well-being. You know, something this is always doing that. Where other people we check out, how can I be accepted here? How can I find my place here? What's the roles and routines? How do I fit in here? Or, you know, or, or, you know, or how is it going to fit me? Something this is always looking for the agreeable. We incline that way. It does it by itself. That's the emotional intelligence. Problem is we don't always use it. Instead of how does this going to feel comfortable or harmonious, we say how what's the right? What's the wrong? What's the should be? You know, we impose a cognitive ideal on the mind. Well, how do I come to terms with this? How do I meet this? Harmonious. That is the. So it deepens our sense of knowing. How do we relate to things? I think this is really important, particularly when we come to the mind. It can be so easy to go into a cognitive response, with its measuring it against standards, which is true. And yet it's, it's not adequate. It's not that it's not true. It's just not an adequate truth. 
You can say this is unskillful, okay, we know that. Now, how do we relate to that? Do we run away from it, reject it, blame it, repress it? Obviously, it's unskillful, therefore, calm it, be with that. Why is it, you know, where's it coming from? Investigate, come meet that. All unskillfulness arises out of ignorance. That is out of ignoring or not properly handling, you know, out of in, ineffective reflexes. So if we start to develop a skillful intention towards mind states, then that intention is an, is an emotional heart experience. And the other aspect of, of knowing the mind that leads out of its tangle is knowing it in the bodily sense which is a sense of, of um, feeling it, placing it, how it's affecting the body. You might say as how it's affecting the nervous system. Now, sometimes it's the case that in particular mind states, you really, what you can sense is your head. The body disappears, you just head, eyes, throat, temples, up here, tight, you know. Sometimes you feel kind of your heart, chest, tight, constrictive. Or sometimes you feel a sense of just the places light up with tension or fire, flames, you know. Or it gets sinking in your guts, fear, inadequacy. Or you get feeling a pressure in your back. So, you you know, practice with mind states is you to just sense how 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 much of the body is there to place it and we try to come back to the whole body make the body the whole body the feet the back the arms the hands the whole thing let's practice with that see what happens we get because uh, a working model a working paradigm to investigate is you know, when you start to contemplate an experience that seems to be unskillful, not going, the, you know, you're in a jam of some kind or other, check out how much of your body you can sense in that state. Whether it feels whole and balanced, or whether you've just got bits of it. You're just a blazing head. <laughs> your head on fire, you know eyes bulging or something or the other where you're just a sinking gut caving in yeah where you're just drooping shoulders giving up yeah and you find that when when there's a you notice when you're actually in, in, in enjoyment and in fullness there's a sense of the whole body seems to open up you know welcoming What's that like? And you see how just trying to come back to the wholeness of the body is one way in which we start to dislodge these reflexes, these maladaptive reflexes, volitions, pressures, biases that capture us. They're like a kind of a a triggering that sets up particular nervous impulses and parts of our body-mind light up and get charged. And part of that 
body-mind holistic thing goes quiet and we become the particular pattern of our nervous, emotional, psychological landscape. We become a particular feature in that. Yeah. And it's always much narrower than the full picture. So a lot of our mind can be known or part of the knowing of the mind that takes it out of its tangle is bodily knowing. Knowing the mind states that get you running. Knowing the mind states that make you feel small and tight. Making, knowing the mind states that make you feel you know, like you're hardly here at all. Invisible, formless. And just keep grounding that back into the experience of body because the body doesn't have a future or a past or a comparison or a should be or if only or if his fault or why always do that to me or I've got to get this done by nine o'clock. It doesn't do that. So it's a place where these, these reflexes can be known for what they are. In that place, we give ourselves a chance, you know. Not that these necessarily are, are completely incorrect messages, but they're not messages that grasp and capture us. They're just, okay, that's that. So we can experience the world of perception and self and relativity without taking a stand on it or pushing it away. So it's in our way of knowing, in our way of apprehending this very central point that the whole of our world of time, place, me, you, occupations, are not, you know, being good at it, not being good at it, all that starts to release. And so this very, this is the heart of the ending of suffering unentangled knowing so you won't.